0: Receipts live show at Tadoom.com slash WHTR. That's T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W H T R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash we have the receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at to doom.com slash WHTR. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Ray Vada, your host for this week's episode. Here on You Can't Make This Up, we bring in interviewers to talk about different Netflix series and films with special guests. And all the stories are surprisingly true. This week is a true cinephile's delight. We're diving into The Love Me When I'm Dead, a new documentary directed by Academy Award-winning filmmaker Morgan Neville. They'll Love Me When I'm Dead chronicles the making of Orson Welles' previously unfinished final film, The Other Side of the Wind. In case you haven't seen either yet, both movies are available on Netflix. And here to talk about everything Orson Welles is Morgan Neville and Karina Longworth. Karina hosts the beloved Hollywood history podcast, You Must Remember This, and released her new book just this week. It's called Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. Without further ado, here's Karina and Morgan.
1: I'm here with Morgan Neville, the Oscar-winning director of 20 Feet from Stardom and the recent documentary blockbuster, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Morgan's latest film is They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which tells the story of the last film made by the legendary Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind. Morgan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. For people who don't know, what is The Other Side of the Wind?
2: Uh, You're going to make me explain The Other Side of the Wind. (laughs) It's an almost, you know, unexplainable film. Um, So Orson... Was made a movie called The Other Side of the Wind, which he um, shot for six years, edited for several years, and never finished. And the film, if I can do it justice, is a film about a film director coming back to America after years of abroad, um, who had been a once-celebrated film director, uh, who comes back to make his final film and is unable to because of lack of funds. And this is exactly what happened in the course of making the film. So the film, in a way, was Orson's autobiography of this last chapter of his life, even though he hated for it to be described that way. But then to even get into what the film is itself, um, which gets Byzantine, (laughs) is that the film is actually both the film that this film director was trying to make, which is the fictional film director. director, uh, Jake Haniford was the name of the director, played by John Huston, kind of as a stand-in for Orson Welles. And then... Around this film that he was making that's inside of the movie is this assemblage of documentary footage that's all filmed at this birthday party. So it takes place on one day, which is the birthday and final day of Jake Hanford's life. So it's both a kind of a documentary assemblage wrapped around uh, a kind of satirical version of a Antonioni-type European film that this film director was making. So it's it's a very – a very avant-garde film. I mean and that's kind of what I wanted to explore that that Wells late in his career was actually doing the most avant-garde work of his career.
1: Before you made this documentary, what was your um experience of, of knowing about Orson Welles and your fandom of him?
2: Uh it was huge. I mean as <laughs> most film lovers, you know, and um and filmmakers, you know, Wells is one of those towering figures. But even really from my childhood, Wells was a huge kind of figure in my household. So my dad was a huge film nut. And I think we must have had the biggest Betamax collection Mm. west of the Mississippi, particularly focused on old Hollywood and um, some European, particularly noir, screwball, all these genres that I devoured as a kid. And I'd seen most of Wells' films by the time I was 16. And he actually died on my 18th birthday. Oh, wow. And I remember very vividly being depressed (laughs) on that day.
1: What a crazy rite of passage. I
2: know. It was, I just, I I remember where I was when I heard. I remember everything about it. Um, So even at that point, he meant that much to me, which is interesting. But I never imagined I'd make a film about him. So how did
1: that come about?
2: Well, I mean, there have been piles of documentaries about (laughs) Orson Welles and piles of biographies. And I've watched and read Many of them, most of them, um, but I didn't see a fresh story a- until I read Josh Carp's book Orson Welles' Last Movie. So Josh, who's a producer on the film and, and um, a writer, had written this book maybe four years ago. And actually, there was an excerpt in Vanity Fair in the beginning before the book was published. I read the excerpt. I couldn't get enough of it. The moment the book came out, I read it, and the entire time I was reading the book, I just kept thinking, "Oh my God, if I could only see this footage." So Orson shot this movie for six years. He shot 10 movies worth of material, and it ended up locked in a vault in Paris for 40 years. And I just kept thinking, I would love to tell this last chapter of Orson's life, which is the least understood chapter, through this film he was making autobiographically. And so I set about trying to do that. So what I found out was at that time, Frank Marshall was trying to get the footage, as he had been trying to get this footage out of a vault for decades, mm-hmm. Frank, who's a very well-known, famous Hollywood producer, had started as a production manager uh, on this film, The Other Side of the Wind, for Orson. And to him, he this was kind of a, a cause he had spent decades on trying to rescue this film. And when I contacted him, he said, good news, in about six weeks, we're going to have this footage out of the vault and we're actually going to try and finish the other side of the wind. And we'll have all of the dailies and you can make a documentary. We'll make the feature film and we'll be at Cannes in May. (laughs) Um, Three years later, (laughs) I get a call from Frank saying, we're going to get the footage. It's coming. It's on its way from Paris. Uh, We'll be at Cannes next year. (laughs) And, um, you know, my attitude was, okay, this is about the 20th time I'd heard this. And uh, I didn't didn't believe it. In fact, nobody really believed it until the footage was actually sitting here in Los Angeles.
1: Was there ever any thought, because your documentary ends basically with Wells' death, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't cover this reconstruction process. Was there any thought to having a camera crew covering what they were doing and telling that part of the story?
2: Not for me. Um, And Frank did end up filming all that with Philip, and there's a featurette that I think will be on Netflix where you can see the restoration process and things like that. For me as a filmmaker, Wells is my hero, you know. Yeah. And um, and I, it's funny because I'd made a film many years ago about Hank Williams. Mm. And so much stuff happened after Hank Williams died. In the wake of his death, dueling widows who both claimed they were Mrs. Hank Williams, the Grand Ole Opry claiming that he hadn't been fired and he was coming back the next week. I mean, the mythologizing of Hank Williams and the story of what happened in his after he died was huge, but in making that film, I realized that once Hank died, the film was over yeah you know, that that's a different film, and so i from that lesson, I knew a hundred percent that once Orson died, my film was over. That's a different film to talk about trying to restore this film and everything else. But my film was really about this last fifteen year chapter of Orson's life,
1: yeah. I know that earlier in your career you made a documentary about the Houstons, which I haven't seen. But I, did you get into The Other Side of the Wind at all in, in researching and doing stuff on John Houston? I
2: mean, I knew about it, but no. I mean, there was no footage to access at the time. and But I, Houston was somebody else who I really admired. I mean, like Orson, a completely unique person in the history of Hollywood. And somebody who also straddles lots of things between writing, directing, acting, and living, you know, yeah. and just having a persona that's so oversized in yeah. that way. And I, th- I think that's, of course, why Orson wanted John to play this role. And he kept saying, if it's not John, it's me, because there's nobody else on that list. You know, there's nobody else you could think of who's lived that kind of life and, you know, lives in that kind of cultural space that it's somebody like a John Houston or Orson Welles would.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's one of the attractions for a lot of cinephiles like me and you to the other side of the wind is that it's kind of this super group. You know, it's like this team up of these great filmmakers who are also great personalities. And then you also have Bogdanovich in there, too, who's somebody that I've always been fascinated with and and whose work I've always found really interesting. And particularly that time period of the 70s when you know he has this, he's kind of this bridge figure where he has these relationships with the previous generate like two or three generations of filmmakers. he's also considered one of these new Hollywood, you know, young artists.
2: It's so interesting. And I've always been a huge fan of Peter's and his books. I've adored Who the Hell Made It. And, you know, I've read that book multiple times, Mm -hmm. you know. So his understanding of old Hollywood and the way he looked up to people like Orson um, was and is adoring. So, you know, he started by doing an interview book with Orson. The book – he started the book in 1968. It ended up coming out years after Orson died. So it never happened uh, in the course of making it, and it's even discussed in The Other Side of the Wind. So what Orson does in The Other Side of the Wind is bases the central relationship in the film between this director, Jake Hannaford, played by John Houston, and his protege, uh, based on Peter Bogdanovich, the character of Otter Lake is the name. And um, originally when they were shooting the film, Orson casts Rich Little in the role of Otter Lake, in part because Peter Bogdanovich was famous for doing imitations. And when Orson met Rich Little, he said, well, you do imitations. <laughs> you kind of look like Peter. I'll have you star in this role. <laughs> and what happens is virtually when they were done shooting Rich Little's part, Rich vanishes from the set. Uh, and there are many <laughs> conflicting reports as to why that happened. Uh, and then peter comes in to save the day and assumes the role of otterlake based on peter yeah. <laughs> so it's incredibly complicated that way and where it gets really complicated is the essential tension in the relationship between hanover and otterlake is one of um this protege who's usurping his his mentor and and who ultimately betrays him and Really, what's what's interesting is that Peter had so much love for Orson and if you really – the things he did for Orson were above and beyond. Uh, I mean not only did Orson move into his house and, yeah. <laughs> and continue to live and work and shoot in the house mm-hmm. for years but um, – you know, another story we didn't end up putting into the film, but uh, is interesting, is the Paul and Kael relationship, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Paul and Kael writes this famous barn-burning piece called Raising Cain in the early 70s, essentially arguing that Orson did not deserve the Oscar for writing Citizen Kane because Herman Mankiewicz largely wrote it on his own.
1: And, and basically giving Mankiewicz credit for being the artist of the film yes. in the French auteur sense.
2: Yeah, and – it's interesting, and I'm actually a big Mankiewicz fan, and read books about him. But you know, her only source was John Hausman, who uh, at that point hated Orson, yeah. and uh, and she never asked Orson for any corroborating or uh, uh, any kind of other interview about it. So, and the real story behind that is that Pauline Kael's nemesis was Andrew Saris, the kind right. of leading American. A critic who is arguing for this auteur theory, and she said, "Well, the easiest way to get him is to take down the biggest auteur (laughs) star of all time, which is Orson." So there there were all the politics happening on the film criticism level. Yeah, Um, and so when she writes this piece, Orson asks Peter to write this full throated defense of him, which he does um, in Esquire magazine. And for Peter, who's one of the hot up and coming film directors in America to take on the top film critic in the country on behalf of his mentor is no small ask on Orson's part. (laughs) And he does it again with um, Charles Haim, a British critic Mm -hmm. who writes a critical piece. And Peter writes a very strong uh, attack on Hyam, defending Orson and does these things again and again. Um, So it's odd that Orson would see Peter's character as betraying him and this is where we get into the kind of psychology of Orson. And, right. and in a way, he was writing something into the relationship that he was predicting rather than actually existed because Orson believed that everybody portrays everybody else ultimately. Right. <laughs> I,
1: I wonder, have you seen this um, shorter film that Wells made? I, sometimes it's called Portrait of Gina, Sometimes it's called Viva Italia. I have seen it. It's about it. Gina yes. Lollobrigida. Yes. I watched it for the first time recently because I was doing some research about her. And it's ostensibly a movie, a short film that he was trying to sell to TV. It's a
2: TV pilot. Yeah. As
1: about these, these Italian stars, including Gina Lollobrigida. But it's actually kind of his very bitter essay about not being appreciated in his own country. Mm-hmm. And this is 58. I mean, this is a preoccupation of his... Going way oh, back.
2: Going way, way back. Um, and that piece is fascinating. I watched that before we started making this. And um, it's also fascinating the way it's made. It's it's cut in this incredibly fast way. And Orson's asking questions and he's interrupting his subjects while they're answering all the time. And they're upcutting all these things. And it's so – I mean you see the seeds of F for Fake actually yeah. in, in this other piece. And F for Fake was the documentary Orson made in the early 70s, which – was really the film that's influenced me the most uh, of Orson's, hands down, and a film that's been a huge influence on me as a documentary filmmaker and one that I'm really paying homage to with They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Um, well, you
1: use some footage from it. and sure. you know, I mean, I have a thousand questions I could ask you about F for Fake. Um, but, I mean, I, I did want to talk a little bit about the style of your film. Um, and, I mean, we can start by talking about the narrator, Alan Cummings, mm-hmm. who s- presents footage from The Other Side of the Wind from a movieola, which is a technique that Wells himself does in fake.
2: Yes. And Orson often traveled with the movieola. I mean, the thing is to have an on-camera narrator in this day and age is not cool. <laughs> <laughs> like nobody does it. But I figured if ever there was an opportunity to do it, it was with this film because Orson loved the narratorial voice. And it goes back to his radio days. But if you look at many of his films, he narrates. The trailers for his films, he narrates. Every TV project he ever did, he narrates. And he made a living largely narrating things. So I think Orson loved the use of narration and not just a voice of God narration, but a narrator who's a character, who's sometimes unreliable, Mm -hmm. who um, has personality. And I just thought, well— you know, again, going back to F or Fake, I said, I need to embrace this and kind of play with it. And Alan Cumming was just the an actor who I loved, who I felt like occupied a similar space in a kind of a bridging screen and stage and England and America and drama and comedy. And, you know, there weren't a lot of people I could think of that kind of fit that. And it was incredibly fun to do. I mean, I felt like I not only had a license but an obligation to experiment with this film because that's what Orson would have done.
1: Yeah. We talked a little bit about how Beatrice Wells and Oya Kodar were two of the people who had kind of a claim on this footage and who had to be convinced to participate in allowing it to be, you know, reconstructed as The Other Side of the Wind. I mean, was there any difficulty in getting them or anybody else to talk to you about Wells and about this period in his life?
2: Well, fortunately, I didn't have to negotiate any of that. (laughs) (laughs) Frank and Philip um, took the lead on that.
1: And I'd say,
2: first of all, for the most part, almost everybody in the film was not only not hard to get, but they were dying to talk about this. Because for most of the people that worked on the film, they were very young. It was maybe the first or second project they'd worked on As Josh Karp said, anybody who ever worked on this film has had it on their IMDb their entire
0: (laughs) –
2: since IMDb has existed. You know, that it's something that they're all proud of and that they haven't been able to talk about because it hasn't existed in the world. So almost everybody I talked to felt like, oh, I can finally tell you these stories I've had bottled up forever, you know, that I've been wanting to tell. So there was kind of an incredible level of enthusiasm from most people. I think for Beatrice and for Oya – there was a certain amount of bittersweetness to it. Um, Not only because it's dealing with the end of of Orson's life, who they both loved so much, but also um, it was just a difficult time in his career. And to finish the film almost meant to be closing a chapter on Orson in a way that was both a a completion, but also a little bit of a death, maybe in some way. So... Beatrice didn't want to be interviewed till almost the very end. And I met with her many times and we'd have meals and she just said, I, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. Yeah. And then finally at the end, she said she would. And Oya, I spent six months trying to get her to do an interview. And finally she said, send me your questions. And so I sent her three pages of questions. And she said, I'll record your answers and send you the tape,
0: yeah, <laughs> but she did, yeah.
2: <laughs> and which I've never done it like that before, but that was the only way she felt comfortable talking about it. And she said to me, she believes it's the last interview she'll ever give.
1: That's incredible.
2: Yeah, and I'm so glad she did because she was such a huge part, of course, of the film. She's a co-writer on the film. She stars in the film, and it was kind of the in the very center of their relationship.
1: Yeah, and she's such a huge witness to his life at this time.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and. And she has such a unique angle on it, too. I mm-hmm. mean, that, and that's the thing about Orson is um, he's prismatic. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting. I had a screening of this film at the New York Film Festival about a month ago, and we did a Q&A. And um, a guy said, look, I just want you to tell me what's the truth about this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I just thought, the truth, <laughs> the truth. Come on. like This is Orson. You know that. Yeah. And Orson was somebody who I think would have, you know, I mean, he made f for fake. He's not right. somebody who wanted to embrace a simple truth. You know, there's no rosebud to right. Orson. <laughs> I mean, even later in his life, Orson said, you know, he found rosebud kind of a trite gimmick. It uh, is
1: kind of like the this thing that is so central to the film that is best known of his, but it is also in providing an easy answer. It's so antithetical to so much of his work.
2: Exactly. So I kind of went the opposite direction, which I think is actually more accurate, which is everything's true or not true. <laughs> you know, and, and part of that, is, I think, is because after interviewing – I interviewed 45 people for right. this film. And people would emphatically say Orson never wanted to finish this film. And other people would say Orson – all he wanted to do was finish this film. Other yeah. people would say Orson was the least paternal person I ever met. Other people say Orson was the most yeah. wonderful fatherly mm-hmm. figure I've ever had in my life. And I think they're all true because I think Orson was somebody who was a different person in different moments. At lunch, he believed one thing emphatically. And at dinner, he believed the opposite emphatically. I mean, I think he was that type of person. He was a shapeshifter. He was an actor, you know. Right. So in different situations he and different times, certainly over the years, I think he had many conflicting attitudes about many different things. And I think that's part of what makes him such a fascinating character. He's not a reducible character.
1: Right. Well, I mean, do you think that this is a phenomenon that is particular to Orson Welles, or is this something that you've come across in your career as a documentarian of – of on other films, has it been easier for you to know what the truth is, or is there always a question?
2: I mean, I'm not interested in answers as much <laughs> as questions. I mean, my films are almost always about questions. The Fred Rogers film I made is full of questions. It ends on a question. Um, I'm much more about presenting a lot of evidence to an audience and asking them to make up their mind. Because I feel like if I tell people what to think, that's the worst way to treat an audience. I mean, you want to empower an audience to present this evidence, to present a complex picture, and let people come out with different points of view about what it means. Because that's how life is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let, actually, let's talk a little bit about the imagined audience for this film. Like When you're making it, how do you decide how much of Orson Welles' biography to put in? How do you decide if you're making it for somebody who's already an Orson Welles superfan? Or how do you speak to the uninitiated?
2: I thought about it um, that I both wanted it to really appeal to the superfan <laughs> and... I really went out of my way to not use the same material that's been used before. I mean, so much of this film is unseen material. Interviews he did in French with Jean Moreau and other interviews and press conferences and things that have never been put into documentaries before. So I feel like for the for the Wells fans, there's a lot of fresh material there, not to mention all the dailies, which have never been seen and will never be seen again that are, not, that are left over from the other side of the wind. Um, but the flip side is I wanted somebody who was not who really didn't know Orson Welles, to have some sense of who he was in the scope of his career and and what he meant um, by seeing the film. So I don't have to walk you through every film he did and from War of the Worlds and Mercury Theater on because that's so well-trod-upon territory, but I want you to at least have a sense of all that and how all those things made him into the man who he was by 1970 when he started The Other Side of the Wind. So it was a combination of those things. And it's something I actually love doing because somebody like Wells to try and be authoritative on Wells is like a fool's errand. Like how many hours are there to make <laughs> an authoritative film about Wells? You know, 20 hours, you know, like you can go on and on and on. And I feel like by putting a a keyhole around it and kind of peeking through and saying, this is the scope of what the film is. And in in the parameters of this film in these years that Orson was working, you can get incredibly deep and it gives you an excuse to go down alleys you would never have a time to otherwise in a in a Wells film. And I've done that on other films too. I, I like that approach because ultimately if you're trying to be comprehensive about somebody, um you just you end up sounding like Wikipedia or something. And that's just <laughs> not interesting.
1: Yeah. Presumably most people are going to watch both Your Film and The Other Side of the Wind for the first time on Netflix. Do you have a preference as to which one they watch first? I would
2: say just from talking to many people about this who have done this in both you know either order that I think the consensus is watch the documentary first and then the feature. You don't have to, but <laughs> but I'd say I've heard that from many many people just that The documentary gives you a tremendous amount of context. And The Other Side of the Wind is this incredibly complex, interesting film, but also very challenging as a viewer. And I feel like you'll have a much richer viewing experience if you watch the documentary first.
1: Um, I want to ask a couple of questions related to the title of the film. Mm -hmm. First of all, why did you choose it?
2: The Love Me When I'm Dead is not a great film title. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is,
0: yeah.
2: Um I don't early on I just uh, it just hit me. I was like, well, it just feels like a movie titled To Me and of course it sums up Wells' perception of how the world viewed him both in his life and in his legacy because even in these last years Wells was shadow boxing with his own legacy. You know, everybody wanted to give him awards. Everybody wanted to have lunch with him. Nobody wanted him to make movies or give him money.
1: Right? He wanted to keep on working. He didn't want to be the subject of a Lifetime Achievement Award because he didn't want his life to be over.
2: Exactly. And this is very common, you know, with what we do, particularly in Hollywood, but in many industries. You know, we kind of put our... Great artists out to pasture um, because we want the next thing or the you know youthful focus or whatever it is and and this is something that Orson saw to people like John Ford and um, happened to afterwards to Billy Wilder and you know many many great directors that lived for decades without making films at the end of their lives and Orson saw that happening to him. I mean, what's interesting and why another reason I really wanted to make the film was that in the public perception, the last chapter of Wells's life. Is a sad one Mm -hmm. that he was a washed up uh, pitch man for wine commercials. And the reason that happened was that he took all these acting jobs to pay for all of his movies he was making. However, his movies never came out. So the world never got to see the fruits of his labor, even though he was working on his own films virtually every day of the last 15 years of his life. All they saw were these acting jobs and Tonight Show appearances and all these kinds of things he was doing. Um, And for Wells, he drew this line between acting and directing where he said, as an actor, I'm a prostitute. But as a director, I remain virginal. (laughs) And with this idea that, you know, acting's not real art. You know, And it came so naturally to him that I think he really didn't care about it. So he was willing to do almost anything. And then as a director, though, he would not compromise one iota about anything. He would never do anything. It's why he never even really went to the studios to try and finance the other side of the wind because there was no way he was going to give up any control whatsoever. Um, and But that kind of a distinction between acting and directing, the public didn't know or see. Mm-hmm. So you get this kind of blurred image of, of who he was. And Where people really didn't understand what he was doing. And in fact, he was doing the most audacious work uh, and working very, very hard in those last years.
1: I was thinking about the title after I watched the film because I don't know if – I think that the film proves that the truth is more complicated than people actually loving him when he's dead. Mm-hmm. I feel like all these people who are close to him and part of this process – feel free to say whatever they want about him. And I don't know if that would be the case if he was still this imposing figure who was still around. You know, I think a lot of
2: people said a lot of very ni- not nice things about Orson when he was alive, too. <laughs> so I don't think they were pulling their punches too much. But there is an element of, of um, you know, once somebody dies, people want to make them as one-dimensional as possible. You suddenly want to synthesize somebody into like two or three lines and that's who they were and that's what they were about. And I think that's something that Orson fought against his whole life. I mean, people were trying to, you know, basically pin his life story on, you know, as a boy wonder who um, fell afoul of the establishment and was an outsider who never found his way back in. You know, I mean, that, Mm -hmm. that was kind of the narrative that Orson was dealing with his whole life. Um, And I think he had a very difficult time ever rewriting that, even though he tried. Other Side of the Wind was a major attempt to kind of rewrite that narrative too. But I will say, almost everybody I talked to loved Orson. Mm. (laughs) I mean, there's no doubt he could be a bastard. But there's something about his enthusiasm. He was such a a purist and a romantic about what film meant, you know, that to the point where he, even though he had a huge ego, when it came to film, he had no ego. He would do, if you, whatever it took, you know, he would do it. If it meant climbing into the backseat of a car with a blanket over his head to sneak <laughs> onto a back lot on a student's film permit to shoot, he did it, you yeah. know. You know, he would do things like that again and again. He, he was the man who made Citizen Kane, and he was acting like, a guerrilla film student again and again. And I think everybody who worked on that film, even though they didn't know where it was going or what it meant, they, I mean, it was kind of Orson's superpower was the ability to have people follow him anywhere. I mean, it's something that came from the Mercury Theater on. You know, he had this ability to get groups of people, troops or crews or whomever, to follow him to the ends of the earth because he believed so deeply in what he was doing. And just to find a character who believes so deeply in what they were doing is a rare thing. There, there was no kind of cynicism about his own commitment to his art. Cynicism about everything else, but not about that.
1: <laughs> Do you think it's easier or harder or just different making a film about somebody who is no longer around so that you can't talk to them?
2: It's just different. you know. I think there are pros and cons of both. And I don't know if Orson was around because I've watched virtually every frame of him talking from any interview or you know on and on that that I would have gotten much more than anybody else got yeah. you know cuz I mean he was he was good at playing the role of what you wanted out of that situation so he did that with interviewers again and again and he was brilliant at it I mean he was an incredible raconteur in that way um but I don't know if he really would have gotten to the inner stuff um, yeah you know, I think that's what he put into his art.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I kind of got the sense that people were unloading about him because he was—they they finally could, but I don't know how much that has to do with him not being around or just that, as you said, this was the first time that anybody asked.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess there are—I mean, there, there are people kind of doubting what Orson was actually doing and what he intended to do, but even— even people who were wronged by Orson still have so much affection for him,
1: right,
2: <laughs> which is interesting, which says a lot about about him. I did not come across much bitterness, yeah, I came across people who maybe saw him as an adult in a different way than they saw him as a twenty five year old crew member um and with more wisdom and maybe realized that you know there was something i mean <laughs> it's not a stretch to say that he was a quixotic character i mean that don quixote was one of his lifelong obsessions you know he spent decades trying to make a film about don quixote and i went back and reread quixote when we were making this film and oh my god the similarities are everywhere (laughs) um so there's something about look reading quixote as a young man and then reading as an old man that you know the same way that looking at orson when you're young and when you're old um it's different it's not as romantic but it's but it's still touching.
1: Do you think that it, like, *Quixote*, became a self fulfilling prophecy for him?
2: I mean, it's I. You know, the question is: Did he want to start making *Quixote* because, because <laughs> he felt he identified with the character, or did he become the character because he was making it? I mean, I think. I think ultimately the um, the questions of *Quixote* were things that resonated with Orson throughout his entire life. Which is Coyote, like Wells, saw the world in a way that nobody else did. Yeah, And everybody thought he was insane because of it. But as Coyote would argue, maybe he was the sanest of them all.
1: <laughs>
2: and I think Wells felt that way. He identified with that, that he saw the world in a different way than everybody else and everybody thought he was crazy. And maybe he was, but maybe he was the sanest person out there. <laughs>
1: Let's talk a little bit about your big year. Um yeah. you've had um as we said I hit film already this year, Won't you be my neighbor about Mr. Rogers. You're the executive producer of mm-hmm. Ugly Delicious, yeah. which is the incredible David Chang series on Netflix. And now you have this. I mean, have you ever had a year like this in your career?
2: Uh no. <laughs> I mean, I've had busy years. I had a year where um Best of Enemies came out, Music of Strangers came out, and my Keith Richards documentary, Under the Influence on Netflix, all came out, 2015. That was crazy. Yeah. This year's crazier. Um, and you know, I mean, I didn't, in a perfect world, not all these things would cluster like they do. Yeah. And it was really, like I said, the Orson Welles film was supposed to happen a couple of years ago, ideally. And it was in the middle of making Won't You Be My Neighbor, I got the call saying... Guess what? The footage is coming. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess this is going to happen. So as soon as we picture locked, won't you be my neighbor? We immediately started editing, they'll love me when I'm dead. And yeah, it's intense, but Mm -hmm. it's great. I mean, it's an amazing time to be making documentaries. I've been doing it. This year is my 25th anniversary of making documentaries. And 25 years ago, there was absolutely nothing cool about it. You know? <laughs> and there were. it was impossible to get funding. There were very few places to even see documentaries. And to be at the place we're at right now is amazing. I mean, every good documentary filmmaker I know is, there. everybody's busy doing great things, and I never would have believed it.
1: Well, obviously, there are more platforms for things now like mm-hmm. Netflix. But have you seen any other cultural changes that you could ascribe to the I guess increasing popularity of the form.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is certainly access, and just that um, streaming platforms like Netflix have made documentaries just as available as other forms. And you know, what I always heard for years were was um, you know I love documentaries, I don't know where to find them. And now that people can find them easily, I think it's just broadened the appetite and the the audience for documentaries. But the other reason, I mean, there are many reasons. I think documentaries are getting more interesting and better produced, and. But I also feel like Hollywood's not making a lot of deep adult films that engage with the world like they used to. And documentaries occupy this space that engage with the real world in a way that is not escapist, but is also not without hope, I guess. You know, that a lot of documentaries allow you to think about and engage in the real world in a productive way that's also entertaining and, or life-affirming or educating and it just it's the type of experience you can't get anywhere else you know it's rare that I go to a theater and see a scripted film that I come away with the same experience I do from from a great documentary uh and of course I'm partial because I love documentaries (laughs) but but I do feel like part of why this year has been maybe the greatest year ever for documentaries is because audiences are getting something from them they're not getting from other movies or from any other kind of experience.
1: Is there anything else you have coming up that you can talk about?
2: No. Um, (laughs) Working on a bunch of things, a bunch of things to Netflix uh, and other exciting things, but but I think they're all under wraps for now. but, But next year.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Morgan.
2: Great talking to you.
1: That was Karina and Morgan. And
0: now let's hear from you. Here are some of your reactions to They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. This tweet is from Sucks. Just watched They'll Love Me When I'm Dead and I'm currently setting up a Patreon to invent a time machine to make sure Orson Welles can make whatever he wants. At Tim Salmon's tweets I'm floored with fascination over The Other Side of the Wind and its companion film They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. While the former is a masterfully put together piece of work, the latter is a moving portrait of a perfection seeker who couldn't live long enough to achieve it. Maddie Whittle tweets, The love me when I'm dead should have been called Orson around. Okay, that's it. Good night, all. Share your thoughts on any upcoming Netflix true story. Just search for You Can't Make This Up on your social media of choice. And who knows, maybe we'll dramatically read your tweet. Before we let you go, let's find out what Karina and Morgan are watching on Netflix. It's time for What
1: You Watching. So tell me, what have you been watching lately on Netflix?
2: Maniac is what I've been watching, um, which is just like a totally twisted, great show, um, totally up my alley. So things like that. And of course, a bunch of documentaries, uh, Shirkers, this new documentary that just came on to Netflix last week. I love this one of my favorite docs this year. I
1: haven't heard of that. Could you tell me? Oh, it's
2: this great, again, very complicated meta story about... A woman who made a film in her teenage years in Singapore, and just on the cusp of finishing the film, her film teacher and mentor vanished with the footage. And she gets a call 25 years later saying, "I have your movie." And it's about her trying to piece together what happened and piece together the movie at the same time.
1: Wow, it sounds like a great companion piece to The Loving One. I'm dead. It really does <laughs> echo
2: a lot of the themes. It's interesting. So check that out. So what have you been watching?
1: Uh, I, I watched the new film by Nicole Holofcener called The Land of Steady Habits. I'm a huge fan of her films, like Walking and Talking and Please Give and Friends with Money. And I put it on uh, like one Sunday morning thinking like, I'll just watch like 10 minutes of this and then I'll watch the rest later because I have to go out and do stuff. And then I got sucked in <laughs> and I ended up watching the whole thing just like lying in bed. And it's so great. It, it's, ben Mendelsohn gives an incredible oh, performance. I love and, him. It's just, you know, as we we're saying, you know, there's the indie film world of, of narrative features is not what it once was. And when a filmmaker like her gets a chance to make like a, a personal, intimate, you know, just drama about people talking and living their lives, it's, it's really great to see.
2: Oh, I can't wait to see it. Thanks for the tip.
1: You're welcome. And that's it for this week's episode.
0: We'll be back next month to talk about all things true crime in 2018. You can catch up on any previous episode on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. It helps other people find it, and also it's a personal joy of mine. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hansel Sue. I'm Ray Vada, and thank you so much for listening.